Welcome to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, also known as the URM Jam, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. On this podcast, we will address the real and perceived barriers faced by historically underrepresented in medicine students and residents who are considering a career in academic family medicine. We'll provide practical tips and personal advice on topics like leadership, scholarly activity, CVs, mentorship, and more. I'm Dr. Omari Hodge. And I'm Dr. Tochi Iroku Maliz. And this is URM Jam. So welcome, everyone. Today, I'm so excited because we have a two... Uh, people that I have known for a long, long time from the American Academy of Family Physicians. We have Dr. Danielle Jones and we have Ashley Bentley. Dr. Jones currently directs the American Academy of Family Physicians Center for Diversity and Health Equity. In this role, she executes the strategic priorities of the AFP's board of directors and executive leadership on issues of diversifying the workforce, advocating for health in all policies at the federal level, developing medical education, and implementing practice tools that advance equity. Prior to joining the AFP in 2017, Jones served as Director of Maternal Child Health for March of Dimes, Kansas, and a fellow with the Omni Public Health Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, advising the senior commander of the Combined Arms Center. Both roles involved the development and implementation of equity-focused health promotion strategies to reduce disparities in maternal mortality, preterm birth, substance abuse, and suicide by addressing the social determinants of health, policy, systems, and infrastructure. Jones completed her doctoral degree from the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Health Policy and Management, where her research on unconscious biases led to the development of evidence-based curriculum and training for faculty. Additionally, her research areas of interest include imposter syndrome among the underrepresented in medicine, racial and ethnic disparities in maternal and child health, workforce diversity issues, and federal and state policy issues. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Thanks for having me. We also are welcoming Ashley Bentley. She manages workforce development and student initiatives at the American Academy of Family Physicians. In this role, she executes strategic initiatives to grow diverse family medicine workforce and supports organizational governance through managing resident and student leadership programs in family medicine. She oversees administration of the National Network of Family Medicine Interest Groups, working with medical schools and student organizations across the country to support medical students and increase their awareness, education, and choice of family medicine careers. Ashley has authored a number of publications on medical school production of family physicians and factors that influence specialty choice. She also serves as staff executive to the AAFP Commission on Education Subcommittee on Resident and Student Issues and to the AAFP National Congress of Student Members. Ashley is a certified association executive. She holds an MBA from the University of Kansas and has an undergraduate degree in journalism and psychology. Her general interest is in organizational behavior. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks for the invitation. So glad to have both of you. And why don't we get started? This is going to be an exciting time. So Very, very exciting. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to toss a question out and you guys can grab it. Why don't we start off with what is implicit bias? We hear about that a lot, especially within academic medicine. And what does it look like specifically in the arena of academic medicine? Because it may look different in other areas. Yes, I'll jump in and I'll take this one. So implicit bias or also unconscious bias is when your brain receives so much information from the external environment. It has to have a way to process that information. One of the ways it does that 
is we're creating these associations mm-hmm. that can trigger instincts that are associated with the flight and flight response. So in, in primitive human beings, this was really essential to survival. But kind of in modern day, that, that process has evolved, particularly in a way that those triggers are now associated with things like skin color, language, accent, mm-hmm. behaviors and cultures. So that in a way we start to associate sometimes positive and sometimes mm-hmm. negative behaviors with those things. And those are what we call our implicit and unconscious biases because we don't even know we're doing them. And as you're talking, I just want to make sure I understand this is something, this is a problem that all people deal with. All people deal with it. No, no one is immune to this, even myself. Right. And so, I mean, in terms of for academic medicine, I'm just thinking about um, how that just recognizing that everyone uh, has implicit bias. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's not just a certain group of people. Everybody has it. I tell people, all the time that I know that I have it when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm driving and someone I'm driving behind someone and they're really driving really really slow that the moment they move um, out of that lane in the highway right. uh, instead of speeding up and going I, I slow down to see who it is that is driving to see whether I can confirm that this is the person I thought. (laughs) And so I say, if that has happened to you, raise your hand. And the whole room raises their hand. I said, that's your implicit. That's your implicit. Just deep down inside. You're like, okay. So that's works. And so, yeah. So, you know, and so we have to recognize that because in academic medicine, same thing holds true. Uh, You may have you as a learner, yeah. may have faculty that j- just may view you as uh, someone who has a certain characteristic or will behave a certain way or may not be up to par. And then also on the other end, <laughs> in academic medicine as the learner, and you're looking at a faculty member, you'll say, oh, this faculty member that right. I, I can already tell they're not going to, right. they're not going to let me get right. through this person right. or this person is going to be too hard on me. Right. right. Yeah. Right. A lot right. of uh, young uh, people of color. Uh, yeah. The students, you see another uh, faculty member who's a person of color and you say, oh, no, they're going to make yeah. me work 10 times as hard right. because they had the struggle. And so they want to make exactly. sure I go through the yeah. struggle. So. I mean, it shows up in so many different contexts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we talk about it mostly in terms of patient care and how mm-hmm. it contributes to health disparities. Mm-hmm. But even in the academic learning setting, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of what gets triggered in terms of a student's performance mm-hmm. or in a faculty member's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can get in the way of the learning environment, which is beneficial to both the student and the faculty. And the, member. And so the faculty. I think it's really important that we start addressing these mm-hmm. in these contexts. Right. Yeah, you know, so I think one of the things that people try to I'm not sure where it comes from. Um, maybe you have more insight. Um, but I, I find that some of the hardest lifting is just trying to get people, trying to convince people that this really is a thing that, as you started out saying, no one is immune because we feel because we feel that we view life through a filter that everyone that everyone else uses as well. But it's just our filter and other people have their filter and, and those and other people have their filters. But just getting just getting to the point where you can recognize you're using a filter to view life. I think would help a lot of us in understanding that the way we see things might not be the only perspective. Exactly. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard feedback from our membership where they say, particularly someone who's maybe been in practice for 20 or 30 years. Right. They say, I've never done this to a patient. I I don't Mm. see skin color. I treat all my patients equally uh, without understanding. It's not something you're consciously doing this at the forefront of your mind. And that 
exactly. No one is immune from this. This is mm-hmm. neuroscience, which is why there's a significant body of literature just to the dedication to the study of this. Yeah, no, that, that's important. true. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ashley. I think it's important to note that the people who uh, aren't immune to implicit bias are the recipients, which are all of us as mm-hmm. we might experience discrimination and Right. And it's a form of discrimination. The implicit part is the part that we don't realize we're doing. The explicit explicit part is the part we do realize we're doing. Um, right. But there are studies that show that this has a huge amount of outcomes and impacts, um, one of which is on our workforce. So there are studies that show that more implicit and explicit bias is associated with less likelihood to practice in underserved communities right. or in primary care specialties. So this is right. especially important for us in family medicine. Mm. So, yeah, no, that's that's it. So the key thing is, I mean, one thing, like you said, uh, Dr. Marius, uh, we should mm. try and get some training in that to try and expose ourselves to some training in that. And I know that there are some websites. I know the AAFP has a website. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, if you go to www.aafp.org forward slash implicit dash bias, um, you'll see a couple of resources on there. So there's a training guide, particularly aimed at faculty. So in developing this, it was the goal that whether you are an expert and have taught implicit bias trainings for your entire career, or you just got handed this task from your department chair, like you can take this and literally walks you step by step through how do you deliver on what is an evidence-based uh, curriculum to students, residents. It's good for CME, anybody with on the spectrum of becoming a physician and for other members of the primary care team. And then it comes with supplemental materials, such as some really great videos that were developed, particularly with working with a patient engagement group, telling patients perspectives. Um, it's got a video there showing the perspective of a young resident experiencing some explicit bias, particularly from an attending physician, which is really great to watch too. This is good because, I mean, as, as future, the, the, our audience being students, residents and some faculty as well, this is good to, information to know as they for go on that p- pathway to becoming an academic physician, to know that they, there are these resources. They don't have to create it themselves. They don't have to look too far. They it's do not have to family, start from scratch. Already <laughs> done. Already done. So that's good. All right. So my, my next question is about the second part of our topic today. And that is, what is microaggression and what does it look like in academic medicine? Ooh, Ashley, you want to jump in on this one with me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) I mean, similarly to implicit bias, microaggressions are also associated with um, some really, really concerning outcomes. Microaggressions are, they're slights. They're those those Mm -hmm. comments and interactions that um, and they can be implicit. They can be not realized by the person delivering them, or they can also be explicit and mm. um, intentional. But they're, they're those slights that fall kind of just under the radar of being called discrimination, yeah. um, right. but they add up. And then the people who experience these are the same people who are experiencing other elements of discrimination and bias at a higher rate. They're those who are underrepresented in medicine, um, women. And, and so for these groups, they have not only are they in a, an environment where there may be fewer of them and a community that's a little bit harder to, to connect in with, yeah. um, but then they're also experiencing more of these things than others. And the predominant individuals in medical education are the ones experiencing less, not, not realizing that it might be as, as large of an issue as it is. There's literature showing that microaggressions are associated with increased likelihood for depression during mm-hmm. medical school, that they're associated with lower medical student satisfaction while they're in mm-hmm. medical school, and then also, really importantly, a lower likelihood for completing medical school. So this is that inclusion step 
You know, mm-hmm. we talk about yes. diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a lot of people lump those together. And that that's important because they're mutually reinforcing, but they're also very distinct. And this is that inclusion piece as we diversify our medical school classes. And, and some of you may have seen the AAMC just put out a report saying that diversity um, for the matriculating class is up and that's really exciting. Mm. But now is where we have to make sure that our medical schools are are, are engaging and including those students. And, right. and microaggressions are a piece that plays into that. For family medicine, the literature on microaggressions also shows that it can lead students away from a family medicine specialty choice. There's a really interesting study from 2017 that looked at students' specialty likelihood upon matriculation and upon graduation and then mm-hmm. um, asked them about their experiences of um, discrimination, including microaggression. And they found that students who, who had moved away from a primary care likelihood yeah. were more likely to, to experience higher levels of microaggression and discrimination um, and also have less favorable or fewer interactions with minority groups. So nice. this study right. shows who were interested in primary care and stayed on a primary care track have reported fewer instances of microaggressions. Right. And so it's really important that we find a way to support students through all of this. The AFP did one study also I'll mention back in the mid 2010s. So it's been a couple of years now, but we were trying to tease out the hidden curriculum of medical school. The and hidden Kuwait pause. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Time out. <laughs> Good point. The hidden curriculum. Do you want to expound upon that? <laughs> just I I just want to say that yeah. the hidden curriculum. Oh, medical schools. Oh, medical schools. <laughs> just go ahead. I'm sorry. Please. No, please. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> speak, speak, speak to the hidden. I think that should actually be its own podcast. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm, yeah. As you were saying that, that I'm thinking podcast. that might be like a that's a that's a that one will have to take deep breaths before and after. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry, Ashley. Go sure. ahead. Sure. We were we were really looking at trying to determine what about medical experience, school experiences that are not part of the written curriculum impact mm-hmm. a student's learning outcomes and specialty choice. Yeah. A lot of people do like to refer to that as the hidden curriculum. And in our primary care circles, we kind of all know what each other's talking about, but you get out outside of the primary care circles. And it's, it's interesting. Fewer people know what we're talking about. We think it's something that everyone has accepted, but it's actually something we're especially attuned to uh, because we experience it in primary right. care. We experience high levels of discrimination, if you will, for mm-hmm. specialty choice in some cases. But the AFP did a survey and we asked our medical student members um, about how respected they felt family medicine was at their medical school. And it are the results threw us for a loop. We found that students who chose family medicine, were more likely to say their medical schools were uh, less respectful environments. The rebels. It's the rebels. (laughs) The rebels go into family medicine. (laughs) We're the the Jedi. Does this mean that medical schools should just disrespect family medicine and we're going to get more family physicians, (laughs) which is absolutely not true. No. But we we think what happened is that students who um, were on that specialty path became really attuned to those microaggressions and slights and overt discrimination uh, for their specialty choice. And it also tells us that others don't necessarily realize that they don't see Mm -hmm. that. And it's the same thing with discrimination for uh, skin color, gender, sexual Mm -hmm. orientation, and any of those elements that. Here's a question that I have for you based off of that, because this is something that maybe you guys, I want, I want to hear what your perspective is. As you're speaking, of course, I have a, I have many situations in mind that I think can fit under that umbrella of microaggression. Oh, I've got a number of them. You know what I'm saying? 
<laughs> so, but, but when you are experiencing that, especially in this environment of academic medicine, because we have, most of us have laid it all on the line. There is no plan B. This is it. So when we want to deal with these situations, I can think of multiple times where I just kind of grinned my teeth and bared it as opposed to really trying to address this issue. And maybe that's the question that I'm asking. How do you address this issue? And maybe a follow up with that would be, how do you know if this is even an issue that needs to be dealt with? Sometimes it's just that person is just they're rude to everybody. It's not necessarily an undertone of a, a, a racial or demographic that they're acting this way. It's just everybody. But then sometimes it really is what you're feeling. So how do you approach that, especially considering the fact that we have so much already on the line? I mean, honestly, I feel like it's just one of those things you know it when you see it. Right. And it's it's the it likes it, like Ashley was saying how insidious is it's you know who of us have not heard the comment of oh you speak so well mm. right <laughs> uh, or who has not seen oh you're pretty for a dark skinned girl right, 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 right or right. who has not heard that you're too smart to go into family medicine right, right. oh my gosh <laughs> you know oh it when you see it yeah, and so yeah, it's yeah. just like. You can grin, you can bear it, but eventually it reaches a threshold. And I think for those people, when they've reached their threshold, they've got to figure out a strategy, an ally, somebody they can go to, somebody that can kind of confirm what they're feeling and validate that. That's great. That's so great. that we don't then start suffering from imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, did, we did a podcast yes. on that. Right? That's, a great, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, I think seeking out people that can validate that for us is really important. So we don't feel like we're the crazy ones necessarily, that Mm -hmm. we're just overblowing things and then identifying, well, what is what is the solution exactly look like? Danielle, I'm glad you mentioned allyship because I think it's something it's so important and this is something we all can do. So if you experience discrimination, microaggressions, experience bias, you can look at where you can go to for support. but you know, how strong can we be if we all are watching out for each other and having each other's backs? Mm-hmm. And so right. you see that right. for somebody else, mm-hmm. you saying something, saying something right. to them. Hey, I overheard that. Right. How do you feel? Um, or saying something to the person who said it. Hey, right. um, I don't want to say anything in front of them, but um, do you know how what you just said could have been perceived mm-hmm. and help people mm-hmm. understand the, the meaning and the power of their words. And, and when it comes from someone else having your back, not only does that make you feel so much better, but it takes that pressure off of you to decide right. is that microaggression was that slight enough worth saying for. And in the literature kind of suggests that's what's so difficult about microaggressions is people think they do just need to grin and bear it. Oh, this is part of the culture. This is part of medical education. It's part of being from whatever group I'm from. And they start to accept it until they get to that breaking point. And, Absolutely. and you want to avoid the breaking point at all costs. And, and we can have each other's backs and, and help with that. I think can, can I add something to your statement that you just said? Because it's phenomenal. I like the thing about adding um, having somebody having your back. But I would also say try to let somebody have your back who comes from a different background than you do as well. Yeah. Because if everybody who has your back looks like you, thinks like you and talks like you, it's very hard for you to see things from a different frame of reference. But when you have other people who have who have a different uh, upbringing or they come with to the, to the table with different skill sets, they have a different racial background or whatever. And you talk to them about these issues and then they're saying the same thing that you are like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. 
it further validates that, okay, I'm not crazy because they don't even, we came from different backgrounds and we're both seeing this is not right. You know, that's that allyship that uh, Ashley was just mentioning. Yeah. Very, very important um, in doing that. My, I guess my, the next question I have here is how can academic family physicians address implicit bias and microaggressions? And I guess we've been discussing that kind of, we've alluded to this, you know, in terms of just how we deal with implicit bias and the microaggressions and what should we do, et cetera. So again, but how, how these are, these, the audience you have here are future academic family physicians or current uh, faculty that are just looking to improve their skills or to understand more or relearn what they knew before? What are the steps that they should be doing? How can they do more of this? Okay, again, www.aafp.org. I like that promotion. Let me just let me let you say it again clearly because I interrupted you. (laughs) aafp.org forward slash implicit dash bias that start there it has everything you absolutely need um and particularly in doing this work you know i've come across particularly a lot of white men in academic leadership who have often felt they want to do something but they feel left out of the process because of their status Mm. as that white male leader. And I encourage them. You absolutely have a role in this work. That's right. right. If we could do it ourselves, it would have been done by now. Right. But but plus we don't wait, wait, minority tax takes a, takes a place here. I I don't want to do it anymore. And then it's their responsibility as people in leadership with access influence to share this load to create the spaces, create the opportunities so that these can be addressed within the culture of the academic setting. It's a great point. It's a great point. In preparation for this conversation, I did some review of the literature and there's actually some some great clarity on what can be done in academic medicine to really to battle implicit bias, microaggressions and other form of discrimination. One of the first things is to, to look at the curriculum, make sure it's embedded into the curriculum, curricular experiences for students. Um, another one is the diversity of the medical school class. So mm-hmm. making sure that your, your school and as faculty that you're finding opportunities to, to influence the process for recruitment and um, admission to the medical school. And, and again, it can't just be about recruitment. It has to be about inclusion and, and creating successful experiences for those students. We also see that students, they need experiences. And this goes back experiences related to individuals that are going to counter their biases. So if you look at how do you, how do you fight implicit bias? It's implicit. I don't know it. I don't know. Right, 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 right. One of the things is you, you, you learn about it. You can take implicit association tests and, and other things to uncover your own unconscious bias. And then you can purposely make sure that you are in debiasing experiences, that you expose yourself to individuals that can counter your biases. You find slow drivers that aren't from the class that you thought that they were from. <laughs> you find right. Yes, that's to true. Counter that. mm-hmm. And as medical right. school faculty, you can create that for your students too. We've also seen that students who have more experiences with uh, minority groups and others that represent underrepresented populations during medical school makes not only more likely to reduce these biases, but also more likely to want to serve those populations right. uh, in practice and more likely to be interested in primary care. I've seen really great training programs from residencies. There's a residency, I can't remember which one it is, but they have all of their residents. They drop them off in the middle of town and they give them like 20 bucks. They tell them. Yes, I heard. Right, right. Yes, I know. I heard about that. I can't remember, but I love that. I love that idea, but go ahead, go ahead. 
they have to find a way to get to their clinic, to get to their, you know, quote unquote appointment on time using public transportation. And they've got to feed their family of four a healthy, nutritious dinner on that 20 bucks. And it really helps their residents take, you know, so they're not sitting there going, oh, these patients, they're always late. Right. Why do they have their kids with them at every appointment? Can't we just need to focus and it helps them just walk in the shoes. So other experiences where learners can walk in the shoes of those they, they may not have had as much experience with can be really, really right. important. I think also on the, the topic of power, we all have power. Mm-hmm. The people Absolutely. you traditionally think of, the white male that uh, Danielle was talking about, but everyone has power from where they stand, even the learners. And sometimes the learners don't realize the power that they have. The AFP has a program called the Primary Care Leadership Collaborative. We work with family medicine interest groups that want to, we call it uh, FMIGs with purpose. They want to take action in their community on an issue related to primary care. And one of the schools that we were working with last year, the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, their goal was to identify and address experiences of discrimination, bias, and microaggressions at their medical school. Um, And they did so by working on a training. And their medical school was so excited about what they were doing. They actually, that group is now leading a a first year required course for every single medical school. So here's Mm, a family medicine interest group that is now part of the curriculum Mm, for hundred percent of the learners that come through that institution. It's probably not something the faculty could have done on their own. They actually needed the students energy around that issue. And so students don't always realize that they can be, they have power too. Sometimes power that faculty doesn't have. Um, research projects too, getting students involved in research projects. The literature suggests that if, if microaggressions are important to you, um, you need to measure them. So how is your institution measuring these things? And that's another way that it can show that microaggressions are also legitimate discrimination that we need to be concerned about. And then I know that there are some opportunities for those who are interested in our path, you know, moving forward in academic medicine. Of course, embedded in that, you become a leader. If you're a faculty member, you, you're leading your residents or you're leading your students. And so what are the other opportunities that are there for leadership development? I don't know, Danielle, did you want to speak to this or? Yeah, I mean, I think with it, even within the academy. So we've had a health equity fellowship for, I think, since 2018 now, where we partnered with AFMRD, mm-hmm. particularly where they fund for a program director to be a part of our fellowship, where the goal is to actually op- to teach these fellows how to operationalize equity in an mm-hmm. academic setting. Mm-hmm. And so I think with our first class of fellows, one of the first projects uh, we had someone work on was implementing an implicit bias training for faculty that was at the new Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine out in California, mm-hmm. uh, which was before the inaugural class was even selected. So you're talking about laying the foundation and the groundwork for a brand new medical school to address these issues of microaggressions, implicit bias before students even set foot in the classroom. So I I definitely think, you know, opportunities where you can get some of that practical didactic learning, particularly that translates what's in the evidence-based research into practical applications in an academic setting, those opportunities are invaluable. And especially if you can integrate them in a way that addresses policies, operations, systems, ground level work, so that then when you see the outcomes is kind of cultivating these rich, inclusive and diverse environments that facilitate learning for everybody. You know, something that you, that um, I'm gonna go back for a second to something that Ashley said that really made me think. And I think it's a, 
a good moment to echo that you were talking about that we all have power. And, and I totally agree with you. And I think many times the difficulty with implicit bias or microaggressions is getting the perpetrators to recognize that there is such a thing and that they might unconsciously be doing those things, right? And as you were speaking, I was thinking about my position as a Black male in the society, and I may not understand what it's like to be a woman walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night. You know, I'm a pretty big guy, and I've never really felt a fear of walking somewhere in a dark alley by myself because somebody might take advantage of me. And when I think those thoughts, um, my wife thinks about those things because she'll go out of her way to make sure she's going down that right path, make sure it's lit, make sure she has keys in her hands. And so when I think about that, I start to think about the lens that she has to view life and what is it like. And so when I see other women coming, I automatically try to put myself in a position where they feel less threatened. That doesn't mean that I make excuses for who I am, but I understand the feelings that they might be feeling because they don't have, you know, the musculature or the physique that I have. Not that there's anything to brag about right there, but <laughs> yeah, right, but, right. Okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find how it allows you to say that there's no, there's no one immune from this, the homework of really trying to take your time and figure out, okay, I might have this. What does this look like if I were to be more considerate in that nature? And how would I apply myself differently? Whether that you're white, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, whether you have a different sexuality, you can envision the struggles that people go through and learn about that. And that makes you navigate in a way where you have less blind spots that you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent example, considering like, so we start talking about intersectionality, right? We have these levels of intersecting identities that can create us either more advantaged or more marginalized, right? Right. And so thinking about where you exist at those intersections of either race, class, gender, orientation, identity, and that there's always somebody perhaps that's on a level of marginalization that's lower than you. How can you then create space, opportunity, access, and fluence that supports the person that might be on the bottom rung of that ladder? And I think that's really important for people to start to realize. Faculty have an amazing opportunity to model that too. I mean, if you're working with a family medicine interest group or another student organization or or whatever groups you're leading, you can also just set those examples. I've seen this work really well in developing team norms. For example, having a norm that anyone on this team, hey, do we all agree that we can come to each other? If something something lands wrong, ouch, ooh, you said something and it landed wrong with me. I want to let you know about it. Mm-hmm. And if you develop that as a team norm where, where everyone in that team is saying, yes, I'm open to hearing about that, then it, it takes away that a little bit of the awkwardness of having to go to somebody and say, hey, you know, that hurt. And, and so just modeling those things as faculty, your, your students are going to take those. They're going to start using, they're going to, they're going to copy, they're going to do right. team yeah, norms no. in their groups. Ashley, say a little bit more. So that, that, that ouch thing, because I've heard, I, I know about that. So just to explain a little bit to, to the listeners out there what that ouch idea is. Yeah, we work with an organization called Primary Care Progress. They taught this to us, and we often use it in our norms, but it's called Oops, Ouch, Snaps. And it basically means that on our team, uh, if you say something and then you think about it and you think, I didn't mean that the way I said it. Oops, let me take that back. That The team gives you grace. Ouch is, oh, Danielle, you just said something to me. I don't think you realized you hit a really sore spot. Can I tell you about that? 
And it's Danielle saying, yep, I'm going to be open to hearing you because that's how she's going to help address her implicit bias. Like I'm helping her learn about something that she said that with my lens came across differently than she would have realized it with her lens. And then snaps, they use snaps as a way to support each other, that they just really want to show um, support for ideas and concepts regularly. So they, there's a lot of emojis. There's a lot of just support for those kinds of things as well. And I, I think that that sets a good tone and example for people yeah. feeling like they can bring those things up, even if yeah. it was a microaggression, even if right. it was a slight. Yeah. yeah. Right, so I, I love that. Start using that at work. <laughs> I love that. I'm like, okay. Oops. So I'm snapping for you now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Support, support. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So I'm going to, let's go to take this home now. So I have, what are the three I know a lot of ideas and take-home points that have been mentioned in this conversation. We can go on and on and on, but it is a short podcast. (laughs) So what are the three take-home points for our listeners? I think what I would like people to take away from this is one, understand the universality of implicit bias. And again, extend people that grace. We were just talking about the oops, outs, and snaps, right? Extend people a little grace when they make mistakes, particularly when they're used to our language. Our language evolves so quickly and something that we might have been using two or three years ago, we can't use that language anymore. That is correct. Extend people a lot of grace and mercy when it comes to these conversations. Be courageous in these conversations. Be vulnerable in these conversations. I am really quick to tell people about stories I've had of challenging myself with implicit bias. So I think that's, I think how we're going to move the needle, particularly when we talk about changing cultures in the academic setting. And then Ashley? Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways for me is if you see something, say something. If something happens to you, if you experience something, find someone to talk about that with. It does. Maybe it's the person who said it to you and you want to help them realize it. Maybe you don't feel comfortable in that or there's a power dynamic. Talk to someone you trust, find a way, find a way to, to vent those things, air those things, process those things, whether it's for yourself or someone else and get used to talking about it. It's going to help you do that. When you do decide to have those hard conversations, it'll help you if you've practiced talking about it a little bit. I think also with great power comes great responsibility. I say this because my kid's obsessed with Spider-Man and it's all over, <laughs> but, uh, but it's true. Like wh- when you have a position of power, whether that's formalized power, because you're the department chair or whether it's uh, power that you may not even realize because you're a learner and your medical school, you know, wants it's learners to be happy and you can, your voice can actually mean something. Um, use the power you have for good, um, that allyship, support each other, have someone else's back, try to have someone else's right. back who is from a different group than yours and, and really apply that. And then the last one we haven't mentioned here is, is try to build a strong support network for yourself. And that's why organizations like ours exist. It's why the AFP is here. It's why STFM is here. We want to be that for you. The AFP has chapters in every state. We have local chapters. They want to support students and residents. You can connect with your peers. You can connect with people one, you know, kind of one step down the path from you. If you're a student, connect with residents, connect with attendings. The AFP National Conference is an amazing place to come together and just find yes. find I your people. to that. I'm snapping support there. <laughs> That's where the students and residents can go. Yes. Come to conferences, join organizations. It's for medical students. Almost everything is free. You get scholarships. Just, just do it. Just try it out. Um, you have nothing to lose and you probably have everything to gain. So take advantage of all these organizations built for you. 
Great. Awesome. All right. So, well, uh, we just want to thank you so much. Uh, uh, Dr. Mari, you have any last words as well? I've learned a lot. I was so thankful to have met you two. And mm-hmm. hopefully our listeners are going to chew on those um, bite-sized nuggets that you've given them for quite some time. All yes. right. Until the next time. Until next time. <laughs> You've been listening to the URM Journey to Academic Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcast providers, as well as on our website at stfm.org slash urmjam. Follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. 